Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in History podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my blessing to be in dialogue with Antonio Costa Pinto. He is a research professor at the Institute of Social Sciences at the University of Lisbon. We will be discussing his newly published book, An Authoritarian Third Way in the Era of Fascism, Diffusion, Models, and Interactions in Europe and Latin America, published in New York by Routledge Publishers 2022. Antonio, it is an honor to be in dialogue with you today. It's it's a pleasure. (laughs) To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you would become as an adult? So I'm I'm a research professor uh, at the University of Lisbon. Uh, the Institute of Social Science is an interdisciplinary institution. So fortunately, uh, uh, in my case, uh, after 20 years in a regular department, in this case, in the Department of History, I came to this institution is mainly a research institution. It's a sort of an institute of advanced studies in the social sciences. So I have more time to research, more time to travel, more time to write. I was born in Lisbon. I did a BA uh, in history. I wanted to study political science. But in the 1970s, Portugal was under uh, a transition uh, uh, to democracy. I grew up uh, until, you know, uh, uh, under a dictatorship. As a matter of fact, not Salazar dictatorship in Portugal, but the dictatorship was run already by uh, his successor, Marcelo Caetano. I was, uh, for a short period of time, a student activist against the dictatorship. And then I decided to study history. And later on, uh, to do a PhD on social sciences. Uh, and I went uh, to the European University Institute in, in Florence. There was two possibilities, either the University of Wisconsin-Madison to study with an historian, a U.S. historian, Stanley Payne, or uh, to go to the European University Institute to study with an historian, uh, fascism, Stuart Wolf, a British historian, and a U.S. political scientist, a uh, very important one, as a matter of fact, he wrote a lot about corporatism, about transitions to democracy, Philip Schmitter. So I did my PhD at the European University Institute, uh, and uh, uh, I've spent the third year of graduate studies at Stanford with, with Philip Schmitter, and then I uh, went back to Portugal. Meanwhile, uh, I've been teaching uh, in several European and uh, and US universities, uh, but basically doing research on 20th century global uh, political history and, and politics. What inspired you to prepare this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? Well, basically, uh, uh, there are one, let us say, theoretical problem and uh, and some coincidences. The theoretical problem is the following. Uh, when we look at authoritarian political regimes, 
dictatorships. Uh, we have what we call gravity centers. Gravity centers that build a political regime and they become a gravity center because of their capacity to export the model, the ideology, and, and in some cases, even the political institutions of this regime. Uh, you know, 20th century politics, uh, for instance, uh, saw the Soviet Union as a typical gravity centers of socialist dictatorships all over the world, uh, from Cuba to communist China or to Vietnam or even to some African countries or Central and Eastern European dictatorships. When you look at communist institutions, political institutions, uh, the gravity center of these political institutions was clearly the Soviet Union after, of course, the, the Bolshevik uh, revolution. Uh, in the era of fascism, we tend uh, to think that uh, uh, National Socialist Germany and Italian fascism were the main gravity centers of um, the era of fascism in terms of the institutions of dictatorships in a way inspired by fascism. Uh, what uh, uh, the main reason why I decided to uh, uh, invite a series of scholars uh, to write uh, a collective book uh, uh, was the following. Uh, when I was looking at Dolphus Austria, when I was looking at Vichy France, when I was looking at uh, other uh, right-wing dictatorships, in many cases, a product of the Nazi uh, invasion or the fascist invasion like uh, Albania, for instance, or the Balkans, uh, I realized that uh, some countries, some experiences in the periphery of Europe and that's clearly the case of the Salazar uh, uh, dictatorship, were taken as a model. Uh, to be frank, uh, also, uh, we have coincidences. Uh, when I was writing a book on Latin America as a remark fellow at NYU and looking at documents of contemporary Latin American history, I came across an article by a journalist of the New York Times uh, this journalist uh, visited 10 Latin American countries and he wrote a series of articles about Latin America in the 1930s. And he concluded, and I, I'm quoting, repeatedly, one heard from priests and laymen throughout South America the view that the Salazar dictatorship in Portugal was an almost ideal state. And this seems to be accepted uh, as a fairly general view uh, in Latin America. A year later, I met a colleague in a conference, a Danish colleague, and uh, a conference about, as a matter of fact, about corporatism uh, in Europe, a neo-corporatism in Europe. Uh, uh, he told me, Antonio, uh, did you know that in Denmark uh, in 1940, when 
the Nazi, the National Socialist uh, uh, Army with the German army invaded uh, Denmark. A, a, a conservative circle uh, wrote to the king uh, to, in a way, suggest him to create a dictatorship inspired by Salazar uh, and, and the Salazar regime. I was not aware of this, quite frankly. And I said, we need clearly to have a book on this third authoritarian way in the era of fascism, looking at how sometimes dictatorships that are in the periphery of an era can be a gravity center that inspire political actors, ideologues, intellectuals, uh, what I call uh, intellectual politicians to create uh, uh, authoritarian regimes of the era of fascism. That's what is in the way on the, the let us say, that's the background of this, uh, of this book. What are the primary themes in your book? What kinds of stories does your book tell? Uh, basically, it's a, the history of how the Salazar regime is quoted, cited, cited, uh, is uh, uh, inspired constitutions, how uh, intellectual politicians that we define as mainly academics, sometimes law professors, who are advisors of dictatorship and, and dictators and dictatorships and are the main builders of uh, uh, the political institutions of, of dictatorships. And so basically, we try to explain why. And there are several reasons that might contribute to the explanation. First, uh, when you look at the, the world of the, the global world of interwar dictatorships of the, of the fascist era, uh, we realize that in the majority of them, we don't have a fascist takeover of power. It happens in Germany. It happens in Italy. Fascist powers that build new types of regimes, uh, uh, radical regimes, uh, uh, with uh, what we may call, uh, in a way, uh, uh, trying to establish a sort of a revolutionary uh, uh, what we may call even a revolution from the right. Uh, uh, sometimes even uh, in, in the ideological terms, in the sort of a neither left nor right, to quote a very important uh, historian of, of fascism, Zev Sternel, who wrote uh, very important contributions to fascist ideology. No, we realize that the majority of these dictatorships are a product of reactionary elites, of conservative elites. They don't want uh, a revolution. They don't want to uh, reorganize entirely the political spectrum. They don't want to mobilize the masses. Uh, they are not, in a way, radical uh, uh, changes. Uh, uh, and they don't want a radical change in state-society relations. Uh, and that's how, in a way, the Salah regime emerged as, as a model. Uh, 
Uh, and there are three main reasons. First, the dictator. The dictator comes as the majority of the dictators of the interwar period. He comes from the conservative elites. They don't come from below. They're not caprols like Hitler. They're not uh, socialist activists who became fascist like, like Mussolini. They don't come from outside the political system. No. They come uh, from universities. They come from uh, the army. Uh, they come from conservative parties. Salazar is an academic dictator. And that's the first point. He comes from the elite. He is a conservative. Is uh, 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 a conservative politician. The second element, I think, is corporatism. Corporatism uh, in the world of interwar cultural and and political scene. Corporatism is uh, a reactionary ideology uh, that has several tendencies. Uh, of course, we know that one of the main uh, agents of the spread of corporatist ideologies all over the world, as a matter of fact, is the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, but that does not explain why these dictatorships uh, decided to institutionalize corporatism. Because what is at stake is basically a double component. First, anti-parliamentarism, the cement of the conservative reaction, uh, and even uh, uh, the cement of the association between fascism and the radical right is anti-parliamentarism, anti-communism, uh, uh, anti and anti-class struggle. So corporatism is the ideal ideology to be, in a way, adopted and translated in political institutions uh, to this, uh, from, you know, this, this type of, of political regimes. Why? First, because corporatism is the negation of citizenship, is the, nega the negation of uh, uh, individualism. It's the idea of a society that is basically an organic whole where citizens should not be the main element in terms of political participation. So uh, corporatist ideologies try to replace parliament with corporatist chambers. In Italian fascism, it's the Camera dei Fasci de Corporazione. Uh, that's the Italian, uh, the name of the Italian institution. In Latin America, you have uh, corporatist chambers with the name of corporatist chambers. Uh, in other cases, you have councils of economic representation. But as has uh, uh, a German a political scientist that went to the United States uh, 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 in the 1930s to teach political science, uh, escaping from Nazi Germany, uh, it's this idea of political representation as economic representation. So uh, uh, parliaments do not represent uh, citizens. They must represent society, interest groups, unions, entrepreneurs. Uh, uh, and they, not, they should not decide. Uh, 
they are basically advisory boards of an authoritarian political system. And then you have, of course, class struggle in communism. As a former minister of the Vargas dictatorship in Brazil, corporatism is the antidote to communism. It's the uh, uh, an ideology that do not stress class struggle, but conciliation, negotiation between, uh, let us say, unions and entrepreneurs, both serving the nation and an authoritarian concept of the nation. And Salazar represents exactly that. Uh, he creates a regime uh, where uh, you have corporatist representation and you have also uh, 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 a sort of corporatist uh, attempt to, of course, eliminating uh, uh, the basic freedoms, eliminating unionism and free unionism, enforcing the integration of unionism in state structures to avoid class struggle. Uh, 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 in the framework, of course, of, uh, of a dictatorship. But all this is done from above. All this uh, is done not through mass mobilization, not uh, through a para uh, a crisis uh, juncture where you have uh, strong, let us say, uh, cleavages in society, but basically from above. And that's in a way why uh, uh, the Salazar regime becomes in a way a model for other dictatorships uh, in, in, in the interwar period. Basically, is a model that is uh, very much, uh, let us say, uh, uh, cited by conservative and reactionary elites not by fascist elites. But when you look at the fascist era, the majority of the, the, the dictatorships from Japan to Vargas Brazil, to Dolphus Austria, uh, even to Franco Spain, uh, 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 they're not the product of a takeover of power by a fascist party, but basically they are the product of a conservative uh, coalition uh, 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 or the takeover of power by conservative uh, authoritarian coalitions. Can you offer a basic outline of the history of the Estado Novo regime in Portugal under Antonio de Oliveira Salazar? Uh, yes. Uh, uh, let me be brief because uh, uh, the dictatorship of Salazar it's important in the interwar periods, and it's out of our uh, discussion today because uh, our discussion is about the book, and the book is about the interwar period in the, in the era of fascism. But even after the Second World War, uh, uh, the Salazar dictatorship inspired authoritarian models of organic democracies. But to be, uh, uh, in a way, to be clear, uh, authoritarianism uh, comes uh, in 1926 to Portugal by and with a military coup. Nothing special. 
When you look at Central and Eastern Europe, the beginning of the authoritarian wave uh, of the 1920s in Europe, they are basically a product of coalitions of conservative civilians and sometimes the military. That's the case of the Pilsudski dictatorship, for instance, authoritarian regime in Poland. And I could quote uh, other uh, uh, authoritarian regimes of that of that period. Salazar arrives uh, uh, to the ministerial elite of the military dictatorship as finance minister. He is at the same time a Roman Catholic, uh, a technocrat, and a professor of law. He comes as a technician, as a technocrat, to solve the financial problems of the dictator. And then, from above, he becomes prime minister. He creates a single party from above. The name of the single party is National Union. Look at the name. It's very important. The majority of the uh, uh, dictatorships of the interwar period, with the exception of Nazi Germany and fascist Italy, uses similar names. It's a single party to unify the nation. Poland, the camp of national unit. Uh, that's the, the name of the uh, single party in Poland of the Pilsudski uh, regime. And I could give other examples uh, of the interwar period. It's a party that forces the unification of the conservative forces under the, the leadership of Salazar. Then you have a corporatist chamber, and you have uh, uh, and you have some uh, paramilitary organizations, but the paramilitary organizations do not have political autonomy. They are controlled in a way by the state. Salazar governs through the state apparatus through a council of ministers. So we are not dealing in terms of styles of leadership with Mussolini or with Hitler. Hitler, uh, 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 and that's one of the reasons why the National Socialist model does not inspire other dictatorships of the interwar period. Italy, uh, Hitler uh, runs a polyocracy, what we call a polyocracy. He is a charismatic leader who runs uh, 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 in direct terms uh, the single party, uh, uh, the National Socialist Party, the militia. He creates autonomous institutions. He doesn't run this uh, uh, national social political system through the state apparatus and through a government. Salazar runs the dictatorship with a control bureaucracy uh, uh, of course, a control uh, a bureaucracy, and of course, through repression, as all dictatorships uh, uses uh, political police, etc. Uh, but the international, let us say, uh, the international, uh, 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 it's not a product in the case of, of Salazar, this is not a product of an important propaganda apparatus. 
Portugal is in the periphery of Europe. So we are not dealing with national socialism or with fascism. Uh, Italian fascism has a powerful propaganda apparatus even abroad. Uh, Italian fascism, uh, in a way, uh, has a, a propaganda apparatus that expands the idea of the fascist revolution. Uh, and it's very influential in other fascist parties all over the world. And the same happens, of course, with national socialism. In the case of Salazar, uh, it's basically the authoritarian elites, intellectual politicians more associated with conservative elites that get inspiration from this regime. So uh, uh, that's probably one of the reasons why uh, Portugal during the Second World War stays neutral, survives the Second World War, uh, becomes officially uh, an, an organic democracy after the Second World War. Uh, Salazar is integrated in the post-Second World War order, and he will die quietly uh, in his small palace uh, uh, in Lisbon in 1970. Uh, so, curiously, uh, 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 it's also a product of geographical location. There were many other dictators like Salazar who did not survive the Second World War because they were simply in the wrong place. Uh, uh, like, for instance, uh, Dolphus, uh, who suffered the Anschluss uh, uh, in 1938, he died before, as a matter of fact, or other uh, dictators like Metaxas in Greece, uh, uh, with the invasion, the fascist Italian invasion, uh, uh, that's the end of Metaxas. So other dictatorships that could probably, could have been you know, that survived the Second World War uh, as conservative right-wing uh, uh, regimes did not survive because of the, of the Second World War, because of location, because of they were in the middle uh, of, in the front, the military front of the Second World War. Many in Central and Eastern Europe, very close in ideological terms with Salazar did not survive because of that. Can you compare and contrast Salazarism and Francoism or Franquismo? In what ways did they compete with each other? In what ways did they complement each other? That's a very interesting uh, that's a very interesting question because uh, when we look at the Franco regime, uh, we look basically at a conservative coalition in the 1930s that attempts a coup against the left, against uh, a, a democratic popular front government. Uh, the coup is not successful, and this conservative coalition uh, as every, as you know, that's the beginning of a civil war. Uh, Franco is basically a military, a military very close to Latin American 
conservative militaries, not far away from Uriburu, for instance, in Argentina, that attempts a coup, and a successful coup, as a matter of fact, in 1930, and tries to build uh, also a, a conservative authoritarian regime. Uh, Franco is basically a military man, strongly anti-democratic, who uh, is very much influenced by theories of conspiracy. Uh, in the case, of course, of Spain, uh, it's not just a theory of uh, conspiracy, since the Popular Front, uh, uh, win the elections, is a government with the participation of communists and anarcho-syndicalists and left-wing republicans. So communism is, of course, the main enemy of Franco. But Franco is not a fascist in the real sense of the word, in, not even in terms of uh, ideological terms. But the civil war is going to radicalize the political arena. So from one side, you have Franco, the conservative Catholics, and a very small fascist party, the Falange of José Antonio Primo de Rivera, that during the civil war is going to become a very important player. Uh, and that's the reason why uh, in 1939, Franco unifies the fascists with uh, uh, the Roman Catholic conservatives in the new single party, but it's the radicalization of the war that, in a way, is on the base of a political regime that during its first phase, as a matter of fact, until 42-43, is a member of the Axis, does not participate in the Second World War, but it is a member of the Axis, uh, uh, and creates political institutions that are much more associated with fascism than uh, the Salazar dictatorship. As a matter of fact, in strict, uh, as you probably know, uh, uh, political terms, uh, the main reason why uh, this, Portugal was not invaded uh, by Spain and by Franco Spain, it's because Hitler decided not to force the participation of Spain in the Second World War and decided to stop in the Pyrenees because there were even plans to uh, uh, invade Portugal since Portugal was a neutral country. In strict political terms, uh, the fascist regime, uh, and for many, it's considered a clerical fascist regime, like Tiso's, for instance, Slovakia, uh, it's because the Anti the Masonic, uh, anti clerical wave of the Second Republic in Spain also provokes a radicalization of the Catholic Church in a clear association of the Spanish Catholic Church with Francoism and with the uh, Spanish fascist elites. So, Francoism during the, uh, uh, its first phase is much more close to fascism. Just to give you uh, an example that I think is very uh, important in symbolic terms. 
Franco is a dictator, does not have a constitution. Franco answers to the nation and to God. It's in theory, in institutional terms, uh, uh, in institutional terms, there is no limits of Franco uh, in terms of uh, political regime, especially when compared with Italian fascism. The only dictator uh, in Europe uh, that has a similar type of absence of at least formal limitations, it's Hitler, Adolf Hitler. What roles did Salazarism and Francoism or Franquismo play in South America in the interwar years? Can you comment on countries such as Ecuador, Peru, and Colombia? Uh, there is, in the 1930s, uh, and that's very important uh, when we look at Latin American history and politics in general. Uh, in the first part of the 20th century, uh, Latin American intellectual and political elites are very much associated with European intellectual and political elites. There is a huge difference between uh, the first, let us say, part of the 20th century and the second part. Uh, to give you just uh, uh, to give you just an example, uh, in the 1930s, we have a series of processes of breakdown of democratic political regimes in Latin America, and also uh, a series of institutionalization of dictatorships with or associate with the era of fascism. In the second half of the 20th century, we will have basically military dictatorships, very much associated with the Cold War and already with a completely different cultural and, and political atmosphere, as a matter of fact, with links uh, with, with in cultural and political terms with the US. That was not the case of, of Latin America in, in the 1930s. Uh, the Spanish Civil War and uh, Spain is much more important than Salazar in terms of the diffusion of models for dictatorship in Latin America. Salazar and Salazarism comes through the Roman Catholic Church and Catholic conservative elites. Uh, so, yes, both Salazarism and the Spanish Civil War as a front between communism and conservative elites, between communism and the Roman Catholic Church, uh, uh, it's very important in cultural times in, in, in Latin America. But in the early 30s, Spain is still... Uh, uh, Spain is still in civil war. So there is no uh, institutions. What we have, of course, is a process of transfer of ideas. Corporatism is one of them. Who spreads in the way corporatism in Latin America? Spanish intellectuals, Jesuits, the influence of the Action Francaise, the influence of French reactionary elites, especially of Charles Maurras, 
a, a, a reactionary uh, political thinker that creates a league, a reactionary league, the League of Action Française, that dreams in a way with a sort of a modern version of the Ancien Régime, of the European Ancien Régime, based on corporatism, uh, is very much influence, uh, uh, influential in Latin America. And it is this blend of Action Française uh, and also of Spanish and Portuguese uh, 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 university professors, lawyers, jurists uh, uh, that are very much uh, 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 that have a lot of influence in the building of uh, of uh, uh, authoritarian institutions in Latin America. The most interesting example of the countries you you, you quote is Colombia. Colombia. Uh, uh, is a democracy with, you know, is a bit between, uh, sort of in between oligarchic liberalism as many other regimes in Latin America. Uh, and Laureano Gomez, the head of the conservative party, is very much influenced by Spanish conservative elites. He's a Roman Catholic a corporatist, and he's going to create the what we could call the last dictatorship uh, inspired by corporatism and fascism of the interwar period in Latin America. Laureano Gomez is going to create a political regime, an authoritarian political regime that is going to last for four years, based on corporatism based on the the attempt to re-christianize society uh, because we should not uh, uh, underestimate uh, that in many of these regimes, even in Europe, under Dolphus, under Salazar, under Franco, there is also a process of an attempt of re-christianization of society through the state apparatus, and against, of course, the secular, the most secular dimensions of, of democracy uh, 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 in the 1930s. So Lariano Gomes is is very interesting, I think, uh, example of how uh, Ecuador, the same, of how certain uh, uh, um, Latin American authoritarian regimes, try to institutionalize regimes inspired by these dictatorships that try to avoid the association with European fascism, especially with Italian fascism in Nazi Germany. The same is going to happen with the Vargas regime in, uh, uh, in Brazil. Uh, the Vargas regime in Brazil, uh, it's the typical right-wing dictatorships of the era, a fascism that first does not have a fascist leader. Vargas comes, uh, came from oligarchic liberalism, is basically a Republican conservative, uh, uh, is going to create the Estado Novo, the new state, uh, that's the official name of the, of the regime. 
is going to create authoritarian institutions, is going to be inspired by uh, Italian fascism, uh, the uh, the labor code, the labor code of the Vargas regime, as a matter of fact, has the labor code of uh, uh, Salazar, has the labor code of Vichy, has the labor code of uh, Franco, the Franco regime, and many other regimes in Latin America. It's an adaptation from the Italian fascist Carta del Lavoro. Uh, but it's an adaptation conservative way. So all the fascist dimensions are excluded and you introduce conservative authoritarian Roman Catholic in the case of, 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 uh, uh, of Vargas or in the case of Salazar or in the case of, uh, of Franco principles. But the Minister of Justice of Vargas uh, and that's why uh, in the book we stress the central role of what we call, as I mentioned, intellectual politicians that are the main builders, the main builders of this intellectual transfers, uh, the main builders of this transnational uh, uh, change of ideas, uh, uh, models of institutions to the regime. In the case of the Vargas regime, is, uh, his name was Campos, is the Ministry of Justice that creates uh, the uh, institutions of the Vargas regime. If you don't mind me asking, how did the Getulio Vargas regime in Brazil manage and balance the different influences of Salazarism, Francoism, Italian fascism, and German National Socialism, which were all on the ideological map uh, during the 1930s. If you don't mind, I will finish with Brazil, but sure. I will answer to your question in a more, let us say, global sure, please. Uh, way. Since... Uh, National Socialism, uh, one of the main limitations of National Socialism, as I've mentioned, is their incapacity to export uh, uh, models, models of governance, uh, uh, types of rule uh, in institutions. Uh, National Socialism is very influential in one specific area, social policy dimensions of what we could call fascist social policy. And it's quite clear that DAF, for instance, uh, it's influential, uh, very influential in certain processes of reform, uh, for instance, in Japan, uh, in uh, certain Central and Eastern European satellite authoritarian regimes of Nazi Germany. But that's it. Uh, the Vargas regime is a wonderful example of how the main non-official, the main institutional inspiration comes without mentioning fascist Italy, 
the Carta del Lavoro is adopted, you know, almost paragraph by paragraph, uh, of course, Catholicizing and, 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 and eliminating, as I've mentioned, the most radical, the most radical principles. So the influence of uh, Italian uh, fascism is important, but the legitimation of the main intellectual politicians that are working with Vargas, they want to avoid the association with fascism. And for instance, they quote the New Deal. Uh, in the case of Vargas, they said, no, no, no. What we are doing, basically, it's not associated with fascism. We are trying to build a corporatist system. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, the New Deal is also a source of inspiration. Um, and what is interesting, I think, in the Vargas regime, and that the corporatist institutions that in many cases in Latin America are associated with labor rights, with a force uh, uh, agreements between uh, uh, unions, official unions, of course. They're not, uh, uh, they're not a product of free unionism. They, uh, they are a product of the state intervention uh, in, in unions, but also trying to force organized interest to negotiate. And curiously, uh, in the case of the Vargas regime, as in the case of Peru, but that's another story, you will have, after the Second World War, a conservative legacy and also a progressive legacy of these regimes. How did post-revolutionary Mexico perceive Salazarism? How did Lazaro Cardenas respond to the rise of European fascisms? That's also... If, uh, Mexico is also a very interesting case because uh, in the case of Mexico, you have the attempt to institutionalize an authoritarian regime on the opposite, let us say, side of the majority of the uh, other authoritarian regimes in Latin America. Uh, so... Mm suggest who uh, makes the Salazar regime a part of their political program, the Catholic leagues that struggle against Cardenas, uh, the opposition party to the dominant party of the Cardenas regime, uh, the Salazar regime, and in a way, uh, uh, other, uh, 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 even Italian fascism, although even if some institutions do inspire uh, the Cardenas regime, are considerate, uh, of course, are in opposition to Cardenas. The experience of Cardenas is uh, in political terms, in the history of the 19th century, or I'm sorry, in the history of the 20th century uh, uh, dictatorships, a very uh, singular uh, uh, case. Because uh, first, uh, it's based on, of course, the Mexican Revolution, 
because it's based on what we could call any in terms of world politics in, in the interwar period, it's considered clearly a progressive type of regime. It's going even to nationalize as as um, as you know, is going to nationalize, for instance, oil and other uh, uh, productions uh, uh, in Mexico, is going to build a single party that it's a corporatist party. It represents the working class. Uh, it has a working class representation within uh, uh, the single party, El Partido de la Revolución Mexicana, the, the, the PRM, uh, that change, but that's another story. The names are going to change, but uh, it's basically the same party. And who are those who quote uh, uh, Salazar, the opposition, the conservative Catholic opposition to the Cardenas, uh, to the Cardenas regime? Can you comment on the movement and worldview known as Morassianism? What did it espouse? Who held this ideology? Karl Moras, a very important French uh, ideologist uh, and at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, it at the same time theorized and he will make as leader of the League of Action Francaise an important, as a matter of fact, he he will build a political party in a way, an anti-democratic political party. Charles Moras uh, uh, has basically three principles. First, he's a monarchist. He's a monarchist because he thinks the monarchy is the traditional way to organize uh, a, a political system. Uh, second, he's a corporatist that in a way represents the anti-revolutionary uh, anti-French revolutionary, anti-Lumière, anti-Republican, and especially anti-the Third French Republic, uh, with all the anti-clerical laws, with the transition from oligarchic liberalism towards a democracy of universal suffrage. Uh, he represents, in a way, a modern version of reactionary elites. Uh, its influence, uh, the influence of Morazianism, of Morazianism, uh, it's very important uh, in conservative political elites, uh, uh, not just in Europe, but mainly Europe and Latin America. Uh, for instance, uh, in Yugoslavia, uh, even in German-speaking countries like Austria, in Italy, not on fascists, of course, in Spain, in Portugal, in Latin America, you have elitist groups, mainly uh, uh, constituted by intellectuals, monarchist intellectuals. And let's not forget that in the Iberian Peninsula, for instance, you have uh, conservatives, military like Franco, who are monarchists. Uh, let's not forget how the monarchist ended in, in Spain, how it ended in, in Portugal with the Republican Revolution. So uh, Morasianism uh, synthesized, in a way, conservative, corporatist, Roman Catholic 
principles with monarchism and gives, in a way, an ideological cement to uh, this anti-parliamentarist wave of the first half of the 20th century, mainly in Europe, but also in Latin America. In what ways was Salazar's Portugal a model for Ioannis Metaxas's regime in Greece? How did the Estado Novo regime in Portugal influence the 4th of August regime in Greece? Can you comment on relations between Greece and Portugal under Metaxas and Salazar? That was one of the factors that uh, uh, is on, in a way, on the origins of this of this book. Uh, because in a way, uh, since one of the main diffusion elements of Salazarism in global terms was the Roman Catholic Church and the conservative Catholic intellectuals, mainly, curiously, Jesuits, uh, um, uh, they were the main elements of diffusion of Salazarism. In a way, uh, uh, the main reason why we, we, we find Salazar in Chile or in Argentina or in Brazil, in a way, there is nothing to explain. But when we deal with Denmark, when we we'll deal with the Baltic countries, uh, uh, even in the Baltic countries that are not Roman Catholic, they don't have a Roman Catholic base or subculture. Uh, and when we deal with Metaxas, we are clearly dealing with models and elements of diffusion that were not done by, in a way, the Roman Catholic uh, Church. So, in the case of Metaxas, uh, uh, the main factors are, in a way, different, but easy to explain. First, Metaxas want to build an authoritarian regime not close to models of Italian fascism. Italian fascism in Italy, Italian uh, in Italy is a threat to Greece, and especially a threat uh, uh, with the axis uh, uh, and the signature of the pact, the anti-committent pact, and the axis uh, uh, between Italy and, uh, and Germany. So the main intellectuals that are, uh, in a way, uh, uh, it's very interesting, as a matter of fact, because they have uh, the main intellectuals, the main actors of the projects of constitution and of single party that are not going to be created or approved because the Metaxas regime uh, will not last long. Uh, they go for Salazar because Salazar was the conservative model to follow. Let's not forget that in 1937-38, the other third authoritarian uh, a way uh, uh, in terms of uh, uh, intellectual conservative elites was gone. And that was, of course, Dolphus Austria. So Salazar was the only model, in a way, available uh, for this kind of elites 
uh, and the metaxas is a clear example uh, of of um, how uh, uh, these elites went to Salazar to get some inspirations, even because as Salazar, Metaxas was a conservative politician. Uh, he was uh, uh, under the liberal uh, regime in, uh, in Greece. Salazar, during the Portuguese First Republic, was a Catholic MP. Uh, he was not a part uh, of the military coup. Uh, no, he was simply a conservative leader that was there in the right moment to make a conservative uh, coalition and to build an authoritarian regime. What was the Danish Hoigard circle? How did it view Salazar's Portugal? And what were some of the distinct features of its worldview and activities? The conservative press in Denmark, uh, especially the segments, I will say, of the conservative press in Denmark uh, uh, were influential among uh, entrepreneurs. And it, during the interwar period, during especially after the 1929 crisis, let's not forget that the 29 crisis gives also legitimation to state intervention of the economy in regulation of the economy against international finance, global markets, uh, uh, and the typical liberal economy. Um, and Salazar emerged in this context as an example for conservative, in this case, entrepreneurs as a model because of corporatism. And some conservative entrepreneurs did have investments in Portugal. Some were very close with the type of economic policy and social uh, policy of the Salazar new state uh, uh, in the second half of the 1930s. And that's how this conservative circle then more than a conservative circle is a, an elitist circle that uh, uh, joins uh, uh, entrepreneurs with conservative elites, uh, uh, reads about Salazar, and uh, arrives to the conclusion that in the contents of the German, the contest of uh, of the German occupation of uh, Denmark, uh, probably the best solution is to adopt, in a way, uh, uh, the Salazar model. In a way, it was not very different from Vichy, because the Salazar regime is is going to inspire also some uh, uh, institutional reform uh, and, uh, and the Vichy. But in the case of Denmark, the king refuses the proposal of this conservative uh, circle. And so Denmark is not going to have uh, what is called sometimes a puppet regime, uh, in this case, inspired by Salazar.
In what ways did Vichy France emulate Salazar's Portugal? Can you comment on the interactions between Portugal and Vichy France? In what ways was Vichy France indebted to Salazarism and the Estado Novo regime? Salazar is admired in Europe, especially in France. Uh, a recent biography of Salazar, as a matter of fact, probably the best. We have three biographies of Salazar uh, published in the last 10 years, and one that came out recently by a French historian, Yves Leonard. It's probably the best biography of Salazar. And one of the, in two or three chapters of this biography of Salazar, uh, Yves Leonard, this French historian, studied the reception of Salazar in France. And uh, there we can say that it's at the same time the product of the propaganda of Salazar, the majority of the books of Salazar, uh, his speeches are published in, in French, are published in French, uh, are in a way uh, 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 translated with uh, prefaces or afterwards by uh, important conservative French intellectuals. And so there is undoubtedly a very important process of transfer, let's just say, between Action Francaise, Moravian, uh, French political thinking, and Portuguese conservative and reactionary uh, intellectuals uh, since basically the First World War in the interwar period. So when there is a window of opportunity, and this window of opportunity, unfortunately for France, is the National Socialist invasion in the beginning of the Second World War, in the occupation of France by Germany, uh, the military, Pétain, who runs uh, the Vichy regime, uh, Pétain, uh, there is a, a well-known, as a matter of fact, phrase of Pétain, uh, and that's the following. Uh, if I have the ideas of Salazar and I'm a military, I don't need to have a prime minister and a president. I can join, I can concentrate both functions. So Pétain declares in 1940 that he has the ideas of Salazar. Uh, and I think that's clearly, uh, 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 the, clearly uh, the main factor why some of the political components of the Vichy regime admire Salazar. Vichy has fascists, as you know, uh, uh, and fascist movements that are especially important in Paris, uh, in the so-called German zone. But the, the conservative elites who are going to try to institutionalize uh, uh, the Vichy regime get inspiration from Salazar Portugal. One of the projects of constitution that is discussed is clearly based on the 1933 constitution of the Portuguese new state. What does the term diffusion, as used in your book's title, specifically mean? 
can you descri describe and define the term? Can you explain its value in the social sciences, in political science, and in the study of history? Political diffusion uh, uh, is very much associated with what we could call uh, uh, processes of political learning. Uh, if there is a dimension that is clearly underestimated by comparative research on, uh, let us say, the political history of the 20th century, and in a way the 21st century, but on the 20th century, is clearly the idea uh, uh, or the underestimation that in certain political junctures, some regimes and some policies do create an effect of diffusion. The effect of diffusion is not provoked by, as I mentioned, propaganda, or uh, uh, because they are, uh, let us say, uh, superpowers. Uh, so it's not exactly the soft power of superpowers. It's not the question of imposition. Uh, for instance, military occupation usually provokes uh, 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 political regimes that are a product of the imposition that comes from uh, this case, from the power who occupies. Diffusion means that you have, in certain political junctures, you have reform processes that are adopted by others. Who are the main the main uh, elements, the main mediators of these diffusion processes. Uh, in the interwar period, as I mentioned, these intellectual politicians. They look at constitutions uh, and projects of constitutions when they need to write a constitution for a dictator. They look at specific policies like uh, 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 let us say, how to create a paramilitary institution. They look at institutions, but I also look at, uh, uh, let us say, political programs. Uh, uh, and so that's the meaning of diffusion. Sometimes, uh, and we use the concept of gravity centers, sometimes certain regimes are gravity centers where other elites looking basically for the same type of models go to pick up uh, 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 inspiration uh, uh, to processes of uh, uh, institutional institution buildings uh, or uh, uh, other types, let us say, of uh, political processes globally. And uh, uh, Italian fascism, uh, if I may conclude, I'm not sure uh, if it's the last question. Uh, Italian fascists, for instance, uh, uh, in the fascist revolution, not the fascist revolution in terms of the fascist party, uh, the charismatic uh, role of the leader. No, the institutions that fascism is going to create that the fascist regime is going to create uh, 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 are a clear example of a diffusion model, a center 
a gravity that has a very important uh, diffusion model. And we see in Japan, uh, Japan sending experts to Italy uh, to read, to look at. Uh, we see uh, Latin American uh, intellectuals and politicians to go uh, uh, to Italy. So basically, that's what we mean by diffusion. Diffusion is always associated with the process of political learning. Uh, um, political leaders do learn from each other uh, uh, in uh, international towns. Can you comment on the passage of the Carta del Lavoro in 1927 in Italy? What did it stipulate? What were the circumstances surrounding its passage? How did it influence politics in other countries? And how was it influenced by developments abroad? When we look at, I will say, the world, the non-colonial world, uh, and by the world, I mean, in this case, basically, Latin America, North America, Europe, parts of Asia. Uh, it's a world of what we could call, it was called the world of the first or the second globalization. It was the world of the second globalization. It was a world where liberal democracy and processes of transition from oligarchic liberalism towards liberal democracy, universal suffrage, and the development of stable uh, 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 process of political modernization and social modernization was associated with a huge development of the word is very important, of capitalism worldwide. Uh, and by capitalism, associated undoubtedly with uh, uh, market economy uh, uh, and globalization. Uh, associated with that, we have, of course, class struggle. And especially since uh, uh, the First World War, with communism uh, uh, and with the Bolshevik revolution, clearly uh, you have the perception in terms of elites, in terms of entrepreneurs, in terms of the major uh, global economic groups that communism is a threat. Is a threat uh, 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 at the national level, at the international level, but it's especially a threat in terms of labor relations. And La Carta del Lavoro is going to, to be a very important synthesis of the following principle. The state must intervene in interest groups, forcing entrepreneurs and unions to uh, 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 be organized in structures controlled by the state or mediated by the state because the economy must be uh, 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 working for the national interest, not for global markets, but for the national interest. And the only way 
to do it is organizing labor relations in terms, in authoritarian terms. That's also the best way to expand, in a way, labor rights, to protect the working class uh, uh, with a, uh, a very important role of the, of the state. And La Carta de Lavoro is that, in a way. Uh, and that's why uh, it's very attractive to uh, conservative authoritarian elites as a sort of an instrument against class struggle, uh, and at the same time, uh, uh, an opposite ideology of communism. Communism is the, uh, the class struggle. Uh, 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 La Carta de Lavoro means basically the institutionalization of an organic view of society. We must be friends, not enemies. And the state is there in a way to organize uh, with a lot of discipline uh, this uh, uh, labor relation. So in 20 principles, La Carta de Lavoro of 27, uh, 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 that's basically what the Carta de Lavoro says, associate with, in the case of fascism, with Let's not forget, in the case of fascism, with uh, a political speech associated with labor and labor revolutions. Let's not forget that in the case of fascism and in the case of national socialism, there is a political speech associated with the working class in fascism. Uh, uh, the origins of Italian fascism are in uh, revolutionary socialism, the ideological ones, of course, and some initial origins of national socialism are associated with small uh, working class uh, parties. So without the revolutionary principles of the Carta de Lavoro, basically the Carta de Lavoro expressed that. And that's probably the reason why it is the single labor code most quoted and adapted and adopted by these regimes all over the world. From Paraguay to uh, Uriburu, to Vargas, Brazil, to other Latin American countries, uh, uh, in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, by the Vichy regime, by Francoism, by Salazar, as I've mentioned. Can you describe the influence and teachings of the Romanian political theorist Mikhail Manoilescu? Mikhail Manoilescu, it's probably uh, the author of the most influential book on corporatism. It's an overview written in the early 30s. Uh, it's an overview of the diffusion of corporatism. He wrote another book, very influential, The Single Party. Manolesco wrote in the introduction of his book uh, uh, a phrase that I think is central to understand not just fascism or corporatism, but the political history of 20th century and the 21st century. Uh, in terms of authoritarian politics. Why? Uh, because he said, uh, 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 or he wrote, 
the 20th century is going to be the century of corporatism and the century of the single party. He was right about the single party. He was wrong about corporatism because corporatism, uh, in a way, is very much associated with the fascist era. In the end of the fascist, the end of the fascist era is also the end of corporatism. But in the interwar period, Mikhail Manolesko, this uh, Romanian political economist, who was also a politician in Romania, not very successful, uh, uh, wrote this uh, The Century of Corporatism. Uh, and The Century of Corporatism was translated in many languages, was published, for instance, in Brazil, supported by the association uh, the Economic Association of the State of Sao Paulo, the economic lung of the Brazilian economy. Uh, so Manolesco is a central actor uh, in the intellectual diffusion of corporatism in the interwar period. He also wrote this uh, book, The Single Party, because in the, in the early 30s, uh, it was not clear in the early 30s, it was not clear how important the creation of the single party was for an authoritarian political system to be institutionalized and in a way to survive and to manage uh, properly the state civil society relations in an authoritarian regime. But Minolesco was the main ideologue of corporatism in the interwar period, very influential among law professors, economists, and, and, and economic elites in, in uh, global times. In his contribution to the book, the author and scholar Leo Marich writes as follows. The perplexed network of corporatist institutions in the NDH, described by an anonymous writer in 1942 as a three-way organizational track caused many problems and conflicts of competencies. Apart from German and Italian interventions, the considerable blame for the failure to build a coherent corporatist system in the NDH rested on the Ustasha regime itself. As previously mentioned, in 1941, the regime absorbed people from several pre-war political camps in Croatia, which helped it to build a wider legitimacy among the political and intellectual elites, but also created preconditions for factional infighting motivated by opposing ideologies and personal animosities. All intellectuals associated with the Ustasha regime widely held an organicist view of society, criticizing both liberal institutions individualism, and the Marxist theory of class conflict. Instead, they advocated the concept of a people's community understood as a community of people along the, sharing the same ethnic heritage and a common destiny, thus transcending purported egoistic interests derived from, ego, from individualism and class politics, as opposed to class division which is based on material criteria, such as the ownership of the means of production, they underlined the importance of estates, i.e. 
social groups based on a common professional identity and interests, such as workers, peasants, lawyers, medical doctors, etc. Unlike classes, the estate is an inseparable and functional part of the people's community. This is on pages 160 and 161. Can you say more about this passage? Can you elaborate? Yes, yes with pleasure. Uh, in a way, that passage uh, dealing basically with organic views of society and it has a, at, the, at the same time different views of how to build a corporatist political regime, in this case in Croatia, uh, already during the Second World War and and, uh, and Pavelic. Uh, it's not far away from some of the pavilions of the French World Exhibition or the World Exhibition in the Paris World Exhibition in France uh, in 1937. Uh, the Portuguese pavilion had a sort of a portrait of trying to represent that idea. The idea that uh, a, the good dictatorship were a dictatorship not based on citizenship, not based on individual rights, but based on an organic view of society where what must be represented is the estate. And the estate is, in a way, different structures of a national community. The industrialists, the peasants, the workers, the universities, the municipalities. Uh, and basically, what uh, we have in that passage, in a way, it's the different views uh, already during the Second World War in, 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 in collaborationist regimes to institutionalize. Because we have fascists, we have Catholics, we have conservatives, because it's difficult to institutionalize that and in certain cases, what we have, it's a sort of a, a sort of not exactly a charismatic anarchy. And that was basically the case of uh, uh, with very informal type of, of decision making. That was the case of Croatia. But let me stress, uh, since uh, you quoting uh, Croatia under Rand Pavelic uh, uh, in the 40s, uh, in the early 40s. Let's go to Kisling. Kisling in Norway, occupied by, uh, uh, by Nazi Germany, with a very small fascist party that attempts a takeover of power. Nazi Germany refused that. But then he offered to National Sammling, uh, the small fascist party, Norwegian fascist party, uh, offer the, in French, partage du pouvoir, a bit of power, to share with the German occupation authorities uh, uh, some power. What does Kisseling does, even if he is under German occupation? He tries to create a corporatist political regime. 
is party is of course the single party is a fascist party it tries to create corporatist institutions the corporation of culture the estate of culture it's the same the estate of culture the estate of industry and try to create let us say a corporatist parliament where this kind of institutions were created uh, were to be uh, 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 they, they were supposed to be there working for the national working for the national community under the leadership of course of the dictator in this case uh, Kessling. Uh, so the the tensions between uh, uh, in the case of Ann Pavelic or in the case of Kisling or in the case of Vichy or in the case of Tito in Slovakia or curiously uh, if you go a bit further east and south in Serbia also occupied by Germany in this case General Nadic is offer uh, uh, power or to share some power basically uh, the the attempt uh, uh, it's the same tensions around how to build a new political regime, but where corporatism is always there. What new light does your book shed on Catholic political thought in the first half of the twentieth century? After, in a way, a radical reaction towards democratization towards the consolidation of liberal democracies or even or even of oligarchic liberal regimes in the turn of the century the answer of the church uh, uh, to secularization and modernization of this uh, liberal democratic political regimes the so-called first wave of democratization the answer is at the same time uh, uh, twofold. Authoritarianism, even if in certain cases the Catholic Church supports uh, uh, democracy and parties. Christian democracy was born, in a way, uh, uh, at the turn of the century uh, in Germany, uh, in Italy, uh, and in other democratic countries uh, where the Catholics or segments of, of the Catholic constituencies are represented by these parties. Uh, these parties uh, uh, are what we could call uh, 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 not disloyal. We call it semi-loyal parties in the sense that they're semi-loyal uh, to democracy and democratic political institutions. But they are there. And at the same time, corporatism as an answer to class struggle and to communism. In the 1930s, the Catholic Church reacts and in a way radicalizes uh, uh, their political proposals uh, in terms of political corporatism and social corporatism. And uh, so in the interwar period, although suspicious of national socialism and with very few links with national socialism, we can say that 
uh, the Catholic Church and the Vatican supports, gives uh, uh, identity to many of these uh, right-wing authoritarian uh, regimes. Many of these social Catholics, many of the social dimensions of Catholicism will survive the Second World War, but will survive the Second World War much more open to democracy. Uh, uh, and that's the beginning, especially in Europe, but also in Latin America, of Christian democracy uh, in Germany, uh, in Italy, uh, less so in France, and in many Latin American countries, yeah, the clear sign of the, let us say, adaptation, integration of the Roman Catholic Church in liberal democracy. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I'd like to express my heartfelt gratitude to you for all the wisdom, knowledge, erudition, and insight that you shared with us during today's rich and thorough dialogue together. Thank you very much. It was a real pleasure to discuss this book with you. If you don't mind me asking, where has your time gone since completing this book? What have you been working on as your subsequent project? My new project, uh, it's in a way more global. It's at the same time a comparative history of dictatorships and the military occupation, in this case, and the Axis occupation, trying to explain how these three components of the Axis powers, Germany, Italian, fascism, and authoritarian Japan, built dictatorships, and now how they try to project uh, and to model these uh, dictatorships. In this case, uh, two cases in China, Manchukuo is one of them, Albania, for instance, uh, was occupied by fascist Italy, and four cases in Europe, Vichy, Norway and the Kisling, uh, Tiso-Slovakia and Croatia, until Anpavelic. So that's my new <laughs> project of how, what kind of processes are uh, in the making when uh, these three uh, poles of the Axis uh, occupied countries and tried to build, in a way, new societies. That sounds amazing. It sounds really like a phenomenal project. I wish you best of luck in the research and preparation of that wonderful work ahead. Thank you very much. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I am your host on the New Books in History podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, it has been my blessing to be in dialogue with Antonio Costa Pinto. He is research professor at the Institute of Social Sciences at the University of Lisbon. We have been discussing his newly published book, an authoritarian third way in the era of fascism, Diffusion, Models, and Interactions in Europe and Latin America, published in New York by Routledge 2022. Thank you again from the bottom of my heart.
Pleasure. Thank you.